The second reading this morning is from Samuel 11, and it is the entire chapter. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with the people? Why are they all weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does, does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell upon the people, and they turned out as one man. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and 30 men of Judah, sorry, 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jebeskulid, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jebesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever seems good to you. The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us, and we will put them to death. But Saul said, No one shall be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to, his, to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all of the Israelites held a great celebration. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here today. Uh, thank you for reading, Sam. Thank you also, Pete. When I walked in uh, just before the service, Pete came up to me and he showed me the, the service uh, schedule. Service schedule says, apart from other things, readings, Sam C and Pete H. Sermon, Pete H. And he said to me, please don't get them mucked up. He said, I'm not prepared for the sermon. Anyway, thanks, Pete. One day, maybe, one day. Before I start, let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and minds 
and that we will be changed from what we hear to be more like Jesus. Amen. Now, if you've got your Bibles, please uh, open them at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. When I was growing up as a young Christian, um, the church uh, that I was attending was a place called St Clement's Layla Park. Um, it was a great Bible teaching church. Um, have great memories of being there and the fellowship that we had. And one of the things that they instilled in us was to bring our Bibles every day, every uh, Sunday, for, and to all services and to all events that were, that were happening. Um, at the time, I used to wear a, uh, a coat which was in fashion called a duffel coat. Anyone remember duffel coats? Oh, good. Those people with grey hair and less hair can remember. And the pocket of the duffel coat was great because the Bible fitted just neatly in it. So you could wander around with a duffel coat with the Bible in your pocket. But, but it's important to have it here because you don't know if, if I'm saying something and it's not there, you need, to, you need to call me on it. You need to know that what I'm saying is true to the word. So might I encourage you to do that. I know that we've now got uh, smartphones, um, uh, but uh, you can look at those as well, and I, I, I guess that's as good as um, we can get these days with technology. All right. <clears throat> now, there's a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot going on in Samuel. It's a, a really interesting um, uh, series of books, 1 and 2 Samuel, because it talks about a lot of the history behind why things were the way they were when Jesus was around. And the, New, and the Old Testament continues to point towards Jesus. Now, in, uh, in preparing... Now, the guys in the tech desk said that this would work. Ah, beautiful. I've taken this... Now, who's singing this in their head now? OK, hands up. Right, I thought you would. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's my working title for what's going on in this, in this passage. And we can see that there is a battle going on. Now, in preparing for this sermon uh, today, I did some research, uh, as you do, and uh, I came across some interesting uh, information. In the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 1 through to the end of Chronicles, okay, it's the first, first half, roughly, of, of the Bible, uh, which talks about historical events and the like, Scripture records about 90 battles... 90 battles that Israel was engaged in, either with another nation or within its own tribes and amongst itself. War and conflict with other tribes and nations was part of the outcome of God's gift of the land to Israel. From the reading that Sam did in, in Acts chapter 13, we read at verse 17, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their time in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of Egypt and for about 40 years he endured their conduct. They were a bit uh, intransigent in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. And this is the land we're talking about. This is the, the land, the promised land. When he gave them the land, he in fact dispossessed people. There were people living in the land at the time. And that caused conflict, as you can imagine. You know, get off my land. God's given this to us. And it resulted in wars and in fighting. Traditional enemies of the Israelites were Amalekites, Midianites, Perizzites, Ammonites, they're the guys we're talking about today, Jebusites, Moabites, Arameans, Assyrians, Chaldeans, Egyptians, Babylonians, and by far the most frequently um, mentioned in the Bible, the Philistines. So we've got a whole bunch of nations that are against Israel. And they're, and they're fighting them. 
And in addition, as I said, to warring with other nations, there were numerous references in Civil War-style uh, battles between the tribes. They weren't united. They were very disjointed. And after King Solomon died, the nation split into two. We had the northern kingdom of, of uh, Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And they fought. They could not see uh, eye to eye. And we'll talk about eyes in a minute. So with each skirmish, the outcome of the war rested on whether Israel had engaged in that war on their own initiative or whether they were instructed to go to war by God. Sometimes Israel decided, oh, we'll go and fight them. And when they did that, they didn't consult God. They inevitably lost. When God called them to, to war, to battle, inevitably they won. Pretty obvious, isn't it? What you should be doing. But they were fairly, fairly uh, um, stiff-necked people. They, they, they were really not um, smart. Sometimes, if you remember in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, they decided that based on previous um, victories, if they simply took the Ark of the Covenant with them to the, to the battle, everything would be sweet because God was with them. And you remember what happened when they went into battle the Philistines. They lost and the Ark was, was taken by the Philistines. Now, of course, the Philistines had to give it back because, because um, the Ark in their possession didn't give them any joy at all. And the Israelites were really slow to learn that if, if under God's guidance and God's direction they went into war, they won, and if they didn't, they lost. So they made a lot of rash decisions, made a lot of, a lot of bad judgments. Now, the nation of Israel at the time of Samuel and Saul was a very disorganised one, as I mentioned, and it was a nation in name only. They often acted without reference to others and without reference to God. Remember, um, we made references earlier uh, in earlier sermons to Judges 17 and Judges 21, where we read, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And that's exactly what happened. Each of the towns had their own sort of elders, if you like, the, the, the towns, townsfolk, and they just decided what was good for them. But times are changing. They had come together to, to Samuel to ask for a king so they could be like all the other nations. But this was a very low point in the history of Israel because by making this request, the people were in fact saying, we're rejecting you, God, as our king. We want a human being to be our king, just like the guys over there and just like them up there. Well, they wanted something that all the other nations had. Someone who was a warrior, who could lead them into battle, who they could look up to, who would win wars for them, who was strong, who was decisive. All the qualities that people think about as a leader. In the end, God said, yes, okay, we'll give you a king. And he chose a man named Saul to be the king over the nation. And we heard about how that happened in last week's sermon. But his role was not to be like all the other kings around about. He was to be a king under God. God wrote the job description for Saul. It wasn't up to him to work it out. It's not quite what Israel asked for, but in God's judgment, it's what they needed. Well, so far in Samuel, <coughs> the story of King Saul hasn't taken, uh, hasn't taken uh, many, uh, many turns. 
Saul, when he was anointed, went back to his father's farm, tended the, uh, tended the farm animals and the oxen, as, as you can see. It seemed somewhat like there was business as usual. Nothing sort of dramatic had happened. There was still conflict um, in, the, in the area. The Philistines were still giving them uh, grief on the, on the east. And we got this guy now coming in on the, on the west um, for, uh, um, to take over this place called... Uh, you call it Jabesh Gilead? We'll call it Jabesh Gilead. And it's about 65 kilometres to the east. Now, I've probably should have done a few things to show you doesn't work guys this is the basic outline of what I'm doing um, I'm now talking about uh, the second point so if you can go down two slides that's it this place is about 65 kilometers to the east of where Saul is, is Saul's farm is um, previously it had been the Philistines who were attacking Israel from the west but now the threat was coming from the east, from the Ammonites being led by a guy called Nahash I call him Nahash, you call him Nahash whatever, he's a bad boy in the Hebrew the term Nahash means serpent or snake give you some idea of what he's like and when mentioned in the text of scripture Serpents always represent some kind of impurity, uh, something detrimental, something that is going to cause grief. This man lives up to his name. The Ammonites and the Israelites, uh, the, the Ammonites used to live on the uh, um, east side of the Jordan and the Israelites occupied most of the, the area between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. And during the Exodus, the Israelites were wanting to go through the land of Ammon to, to other land that they were given. But the um, people who, the Ammonites said, no, no go, you're not coming through here. And that caused conflict. So there was, and uh, they teamed up, the Ammonites teamed up with the Moabites, who they used to not be friends with, but they teamed up with them to fight Israel. So um, during the days of Jephthah, the, the, uh, the judge Jephthah, the Ammonites occupied the lands on the east of the river and started to invade the west side. Um, and Jephthah defended Israel's claim and uh, routed them and kicked them back over to the east. So it could be that this current attack by uh, Nahash had something to do with a bit of a payback because of what happened before. Um, I also read somewhere that uh, Nahash had been causing grief to the towns on the east side, conquering them, taking right eyes out and moving forward, leaving all that behind, but he somehow had missed 7,000 men. I don't know how he missed 7,000 men, but they had escaped and they were camped in Jabesh Gilead. So he was there to tidy up the loose ends, if you like, of the, of the previous battles. Uh, whatever the reason, the city, uh, um, whatever the reason he was there, Nahash had the city right where he wanted it. He surrounded it and besieged it. And that's the sort of stuff that they did to, to, to actually defeat places back in the day. Um, so it's, an old, it's a very good example of the way wars were waged. Now this guy Nahash, let me, let me think, let me think uh, how I can describe him to you. He had a high opinion of himself. Um, he was stronger. Uh, he was greater than anyone else. He was capable of inflicting severe physical, severe emotional, severe spiritual damage to anybody who stood in his way. Uh, he was the quintessential bad guy. 
bad, bad guy, serpent bad guy. So the people in Jabez Gilead, their outlook was grim and they were faced with certain defeat because this guy was really good at what he did. So what did they do? They offered to strike a deal, a treaty with Nahash to cut their losses and uh, minimise the loss of life. And in doing the deal, the Ma- uh, Nahash thought, okay, um, we'll do a deal, but there's some penalties in doing that deal. They would forfeit their freedom, for one, and everyone, including kids, would lose their right eye. Why, you might ask? This guy was cruel. His cruelty was legend. He'd inflicted, as I said, similar punishments on other towns east of the river on his way to Jabesh Gilead. Nahash, I will agree to the terms of your treaty, he says to the men of the town, just so long as I first gouge out your right eye. This man shows no mercy. This man shows no compassion. He's willing to accept them as slaves if he gets to gouge out their right eyes. Without a right eye, men are useless as archers. In battle, they have no perception of depth. They're easy prey. Once he defeats a people in a town, takes out their right eye, he doesn't have to fight them anymore. There's not going to be any insurrection. He guarantees that they're going to be his servants. Does it once, does it well. Now, he's not in the room at the moment, but he might be listening online. Gary Kunick has a problem with his left eye. He can't see out of it. If you want to know what it's like to only have one eye, anyone else here only got one eye? One eye, ask Gary. He really has difficulty with perception, depth perception. Next one. So what did they... Oh, no, back up one. Thank you. Um, Nahash was ruthless and he enjoyed making people fear and serve him, but he only wanted to make the Israelites of... He didn't only want to make the Israelites of Jabesh Gilead subservient to him, but he's also seeking to humiliate them make them feel second class, make them feel despondent by gouging out their eye. But not only that, he had another level of disgrace that he wanted to bring to the people of Israel. He wanted to bring them under him and in doing so to disgrace God, their God. Lord it over the people of Israel in order to disgrace the God of Israel. He was a really bad man. The elders of Jabesh saw no means of of resisting this guy and they begged him for seven days respite to see whether there was anybody else who could give him a hand. Maybe it was his ego, maybe he was just feeling comfortable on a good day, but he said, yes, you can have seven days. I think he was convinced that they wouldn't find anyone. I think he was convinced that... um, Giving him seven days might make them sweat a little bit more, knowing that they're going to lose their right eye after seven days. The other thing on his mind might be that if they send these messengers out, my name, as a terrorist, if you like, will get spread far and wide, and in the future, when I come to a new town, 
they'll already know my reputation and just put up their hands and say, just take us. So he had another tactic going on at the same time. He was looking to conquer other cities. The whole land of Israel was to be at his mercy. He wanted it. He was on a mission to get the lot. And everybody had heard of him before would be helpless before his powers. He had big ambitions. You sort of look at this and you think, okay, how come the men of Jabesh Gilead didn't call on Samuel? He'd been their judge for a long time. Why didn't they call on him for some assistance? Or what about this guy Saul that they just said, long live the king to? What about him? Um, why didn't they call on him? I think they just forgot all of that in the, in the uh, heat of the moment and in the terror of this guy Nahash. They'd forgotten how to seek God's help. They thought that they could work it out for themselves, figure out a plan to salvage some sort of life under Nahash um, that meant that they could still live, that they could save their skins. They weren't worried about the disgrace that they were going to uh, receive. They weren't worried about the disgrace that God was going to get. They were more worried about themselves. Very, very self-centred. It was an astounding thing, wasn't it, to make a deal with somebody who is that bad? By offering themselves, they were saying that, Nahash, we want you as our king. We're going to be your servants. We're not going to have an eye, but we're going to serve you. They didn't want God as their king. They wanted Nahash because they wanted to save themselves. Their actions would bring disgrace upon God because they didn't think that he could do anything to help them. They were also willing to further this disgrace by allowing an ungodly king to take out their eyes. You see, when we try to make deals with ungodly people, we're failing to put our trust in God, put ourselves in that situation. When we think that we've got better answers to situations, to problems and things that we find ourselves in, and we don't think we need God's help, we're doing him a great dishonour. We're in very dangerous territory. We bring disgrace upon ourselves as his people and we dis bring disgrace upon God because we don't trust him. Next one. Next one, please. Thank you. So how do we disgrace God? Well, we can do it either by an action or through lack of action. Let me, let me explain that. What many of us do is act like Christian unbelievers. Funny term, a Christian unbeliever. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we all act like that from time to time. If I take myself, if you were to base what I do, my salvation, on what I do, you'd find a lot of things that I do to be questionable, things that are sinful, and I'm sure that I'm not alone. My sinful actions bring disgrace to God. We've got to get away from the idea that if we're good and if we don't hurt anyone, if we keep our noses clean, that then we go to heaven. And if we're bad, we go to hell. And that's, that's not how it works. When we go our own way, not considering God in what we do, ignoring him in our lives, we bring disgrace upon him. We ignore him in many of the things we do. We make plans 
We undertake effort to seek worldly things, the things that will eventually perish. That brings disgrace upon God because we're not looking at eternal things. We store up for ourselves riches here on earth. We build bigger barns or bigger sheds. We focus on our careers and our progressions, our comforts and our toys, all the time giving lip service to our faith when called upon whilst openly following the ways of the world. Now, none of us are good and we're all in the same boat. We're born with sin and we sin by our own free will and we continue to sin even after we believe in Jesus. We continue to have an old sin nature, courtesy of our predecessor, Adam, not Adam down the back, Adam and Eve. And our sinfulness brings disgrace to God. But God has come to the rescue. Next slide, thank you. In his mercy, he gave his Holy Spirit to Saul and those who heeded Saul's call to arms. His spirit also caused the people to respond together, an army of many thousands to unite under Saul, to tactically defeat Nahash and his army so that no two were left together. They were a ragtag group of disorganised people. Under the Holy Spirit's prompting, got Saul energised and that got the people united. Israel is changing dramatically. It's all God's doing. Those people in Jabesh Gilead expected that the battle belonged to Nahash. Nahash thought it was his to win and it was a done deal. But what both of those groups failed to realise is the battle belonged to the Lord. He saved the men of Jabesh Gilead from their disgrace. He was their mighty saviour. He instilled Saul, in Saul the power of the spirit and the terror of God in the hearts of the men of Israel. And they came together as one, united under Saul who was under God. Here was God taking charge to defeat the impending disgrace, to stop it in its tracks. God was the saviour of his people through his chosen king, Saul. We also have a saviour who saves us from our disgrace, our sinful disgrace before God. He saves us from God's wrath. He saves us from our sinfulness, our disgraceful thoughts, our disgraceful actions. He died in our place that we might draw near to God. Do we assume that God cannot help us in facing the problems and the crises, the dilemmas, the battles that we come up against? Do we consider God too far removed from our day to day that whilst he is of eternal use, he's of no earthly use to us? If we think that way, if we think we're so sophisticated and self-sufficient that we only need his help after we first try to problem solve. Our instincts tell us when a problem comes up, we try and solve it. And when all else fails, we seek God. Is coming to God in prayer for wisdom and guidance our first resort or our go-to when everything else fails? As for battles and wars, God doesn't need our help to work those out. 
God doesn't need our help to keep peace in the world or to protect the innocent against the violent. He's got that in hand. He has a big plan. He intervened in the situation in Jabesh Gilead by sending the Holy Spirit to get Saul energised into, and into a righteous anger for his people and for God's honour. It was God's battle to be fought and it was Saul's role to do it God's way. Now, following the victory, some of the men turned their attention back on themselves, back on their own people, because they remembered in 1 Samuel 10:27 that some scoundrels had said, how can this fellow, Saul, save us? They wanted to put those guys to death. But Saul, exhibiting mercy, the mercy of God, responded that no one will be put to death today. And the reason he gave is because the Lord has rescued Israel, and that's all of them. And God has also rescued us from death. In his grace and mercy, God sent his only son into the world to be a sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. It's the spirit of God living within us that allows us to do the good that God wants us to do. Sure, we fight against it sometimes, wanting to do our own thing, but God is faithful and will forgive us our sins if we repent and follow him. And we're the beneficiaries, if you like, the recipients of God's plan for our world. So what are we to do? We are to go to the next point. Live in obedience. Our part in God's plan is to do what he asks of us to do through his word. In his word, God commands us to tell others about the good news of Jesus. He commands us to preach, to serve, to love, to love self-sacrificially, seek the good of others over ourselves. Instead of war, we're to turn the other cheek. We're to go the extra mile. We're to pray for our enemies. The wars and battles of the past are superseded by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The battle over sin and Satan has been fought and won. God doesn't want us to do everything. Our job as his people is to do as he says. As I said, preach, teach, pray, trust, obey. Leave the control of the nations to the one who knows what he's doing. If we dream up other initiatives, we run the real risk of getting it wrong. And at best, and at worst, still bringing disgrace upon God. Sometimes we become angry at the way God is treated in our world. And it's right to feel this way. Our world doesn't recognise God. The question is, what, is what, what should we do? The power of Satan is far too great for any of us to attack head on. If we think we're up to it, the choices are to attack, to capitulate or to seek help. Now, if we attack, we take on God's role and bring disgrace upon him and we're on a hiding to nothing. If we capitulate, like the men of Jabez Gilead were proposing to do, it would bring disgrace upon us and upon God. To seek help, help from God, would be the correct choice, acknowledging him as the one who is our king. It's not the battles that need to be fought. It's that men's hearts need to be changed. Short of a direct intervention of God's spirit in their lives, like Paul had on the road to Damascus, we have the good news of Jesus to proclaim. The proclamation of the gospel is the thing that changes people's hearts. It does bring evil men to repent. It does rescue souls. 
We're never going to solve the problems of the world by subduing all the bad guys. We can make a powerful difference, however, by obeying God and proclaiming the gospel, calling sinners to return back to God. The Holy Spirit will work in people's lives. Some will fall on their knees and repent of their evil deeds. Let us reaffirm now our commitment to God, just as Israel did with Saul at Gilgal after the battle. Let's reaffirm our commitment to his son Jesus, who died for us on the cross and rescued us from a dreadful death by rising again to be with God. Jesus has washed our sins away. He has washed away those things which bring dishonour to God. He has rescued us from our disgrace. The battle against sin, the world and the devil is over. Jesus won. Let's be obedient, followers of him. Let me pray. Father, your word is wisdom, your spirit is power, your son is our saviour. We thank you that your grace and mercy has been shown to us. Help us to live more like the way you want us to be, like Jesus, in all that we do. Change us, challenge us, cleanse us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.